0: is the bloody disgusting podcast network Created by Satan to prey on the living Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in From Los Angeles, California Bloody Disgusting presents The Boo Crew Podcast Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand And Leone D'Antonio Hello, my name is Trevor and on behalf
1: of myself, Lauren and Leo Welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 262 This time around you're hanging out with a group of hyper-creative filmmakers and storytellers who have gotten together to bring us VHS 94, the fourth installment of Bloody Disgusting's acclaimed found footage franchise at time of release, available on Shutter now. Join Simon Barrett, Chloe Okuno, Jennifer Reeder, and Ryan Prowse as they discuss their inspiration and the secrets behind the magic of the gore and shocks that creep through this new, incredibly unsettling stack of glitched video cassettes. Be warned. Be kind! Please rewind, because we reserved your copy of episode 262 and it starts now! Police
0: search warrant! Police first warrant! Do not touch
2: anything! Could be no one left alive in here. Did
3: I just press the button? Press the red button. Just press it.
2: I assume they're paying extra for this. Yes. This is a remarkable
4: story. Hello? Hello?
0: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew Autopsy.
1: Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are a collective of extraordinary filmmakers. First off, an evocative storyteller and returning friend of the show, whose work has been shown at the world's most renowned festivals, including Sundance, Tribeca, South by Southwest, and more. Among her many accolades, five USA artist nominations, and a scriptwriting award from the Raynin Foundation. She also shares her experience and knowledge as an educator and her role as director of the School of Art and Art History in Chicago, her most recent feature. Feature was the remarkable Knives and Skin. We welcome back Jennifer Reeder, also returning, known for his innovative screenplays that have changed the genre, bringing forth consistently fresh approaches, winning horror jury prizes for best screenplay two years in a row at Fantastic Fest, as well as a Chainsaw Award. His work includes A Tremendous, A Horrible Way to Die. You're next, the guest in 2016's Blair Witch for director Adam Wingard, and his stunning directorial debut Seance from this year. He is Simon Barrett. We welcome new guests and the exciting writer director behind the award-winning AFI short called Slut and who is next attached to the Micah Monroe starring psychological thriller Watcher. She is Chloe Okuno. Finally, he received an MFA from the American Film Institute and won a Student Academy Award for his short film Narco Corrido and the jury prize for his debut feature, Low Life. We welcome Ryan Prowse. They all come together for the fourth in a series of horror anthology films originally created by Bloody Discussing Zone. Brad Miska, all stories uncovered in creative ways from the glitch and static of old videotapes. The time of release VHS 94 is available on Shutter October 6th. Once again, Jennifer Reeder, Simon Barrett, Chloe Okuno, and Ryan Prowse. Yeah,
3: yeah!
0: Yeah.
3: Wow. Oh wow, that was a, a good, that was a good episode. That was good. That was really good. All right, cool. Like, like I feel I feel like you really zoomed it on in there much quicker than most
0: podcasts do. You know
3: what? I, I, was,
4: I was talking to Brad yesterday. We were just talking about this, and then he wanted me to ask you about being quarantined and your experience with that.
3: Brad knows I hated the experience of making this film. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and working with him on it. Like, like you know, very <laughs> passionately. Uh, however, my, you know, my quarantine situation was the same as Chloe's. Chloe got there, I guess, in December to do her, her segment first, because she had to go do Watcher, as you said, uh, right after that. I'll just answer questions for Chloe, but Chloe, you can answer questions for me. <laughs> uh, and, and, and you know, she kind of got there and was like, is, is this right? I think was kind of your reaction. Uh, and 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 my reaction was like this is this is not right, <laughs> like, like this is unacceptable. No, we we st- we both like like really did it and stayed for two weeks in a Holiday in room without without windows. Basically, is the simplest way to put it, and where we had very limited ordering options. And I had a fight with the hotel the instant I got in there because their chef wasn't there, so they didn't have any food for me. So I refused to eat the hotel food in protest. Uh, although it turned out the hotel chef was like a really big fan. But whatever, like, fuck him. He didn't feed me. So, you know, like, well, sorry, dude. And uh, so I wasn't going to eat their fucking food. So, uh, so yeah, I fucking yelled at Brad like every day for two weeks. I would just get on the phone with Brad and just shout at him for one to two hours, uh, especially if Josh Goldblum wasn't available. And I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I was really mad at Brad for his producing methods on this film. I'm glad glad we got into that. (laughs) Chloe, what was your experience like with this?
5: I mean, so like I, I showed up and yeah, the the no windows thing was kind of a bummer for two weeks, but also it's the first time that I'd been paid to direct anything. And the first time that someone was like, here, we're going to put you up in a hotel room for two weeks while you like wait this out. So part of me was just like, Oh, okay. This wouldn't have been my first choice, but I'm just psyched. Like, holy shit, I'm about to direct a VHS movie and I'm like staying in this hotel. The other thing though, honestly, is like, I'm such a weirdo. I sort of enjoy quarantine because I'm like a super introvert and like having a chance to just be alone in a room for two weeks without people is kind of my dream. So I think that's unusual, but I was I was like okay with it. The room itself. Okay with it. <laughs> the know. room itself was was pretty depressing, but <laughs>
1: Jeez, where did he find
3: this hotel?
5: So
4: no windows.
3: Well, we didn't have windows.
1: We no
6: we windows. Our,
3: our, we looked out into like an atrium area, which is where Chloe filmed actually. Um, so that must have been nice. Just like never really ever leaving set.
5: Uh, yeah, I mean, w- I mean you too though, right, Simon? We both filmed in the atrium. We both. Uh, no, I didn't
3: film in the atrium. Oh, you did it. Uh, no, oh, you're good. No, no. I took over conference room B. Oh, yeah. My segment is conference room B. I actually took one of the, we were using an actual wall of the real Holiday Inn in my segment and like the real floor and stuff. Like, like you're seeing actual real chunks of the hotel. Three of the walls are fake, but one of them is real. And we built the three fake walls to match the real ones. So we just, we basically just took, a, we just basically made a conference room look like a funeral home. Which was just like or you know, it's just like, well, it already looks like a funeral home. All we really have to do is just take the conference room sign down and put a coffin here. <laughs> like, yeah. You and Chloe were sent to this hotel where you guys
1: got to kind of transform the hotel and use it cheap for your production. What about Ryan and Jennifer? Were you guys off in a different place? Or were you guys separate from these two?
6: Uh I got there. After them, luckily, and uh, you know, they were the uh, the canary in the coal mine, so they they hipped me to everything. So, lap of luxury, I got a uh, a nice uh, Airbnb for a while, I had a pool table, uh, fireplace, lots of windows, lots of light, all the food I could eat. So, I had a good, I had a definitely a, a better experience thanks to them hipping me to it. And then, um, but Simon and I shot back to back, Chloe shot. Uh, like in the December before, so then we shot in January, February,
1: and then what about for yours, Jennifer?
2: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't end up going until the end of um or like the just past the middle of April, and I also had to quarantine. But after the first three days at the you know whatever airport hotel, then I also moved to um, an Airbnb and I had my own little cute um cottage in in Hamilton. But when I got there. Um, It was also the case that, um, you know, even outside of quarantine, the whole of Ontario had gone back into shelter in place. So even when my quarantine was over, like I had a little gap of like maybe four or five days uh, or maybe it was like more like six days during the prep where um, we hadn't moved back into the hotel where Simon and Chloe were because we ended up all kind of being like bubbling up the whole cast and crew went back and stayed in that, um, hotel. I didn't shoot in that hotel, but there was this, you know, the, the six, the six prep days were still considered sheltered shelter in place in Ontario. So, I mean, I wasn't, you know, there was still very little to do during those six days and like prepping a film when, during a shelter in place was real strange too because what what ontario had done was to take everything sort of non-essential off of the shelves in big box stores i mean on the one hand like big box stores but if you're just looking for like a pack of men's undershirts like all that stuff had to be ordered you know was like none of that stuff was considered essential at you know at, at some of the big box stores so even the, you know, the wardrobe and, you know, hair and makeup, I mean, just everything had to be ordered. And of course, like everybody was ordering everything. So we everything finally arrived, but it was a little bit of a, a like a white knuckle process to the first you know, minute of um, of actual shooting.
1: That is insane. My God. Well, i uh, go for you uh, the you, Simon, for this one as uh, being a VHS alumnus gone through two other of these films. What were the overlying parameters that were set to make this time out a little different? And what were the qualities that you'd have to everybody imbue into the work by setting everything in the year 1994?
3: Yeah. And, and you know, I, I should say that was really David Bruckner's kind of uh, drive. I mean, I, uh, David Bruckner was really the person who kind of put this project together initially. Um, Even, even I think, you know, like kind of in selecting all of us, uh, you know, working with Brad and Josh and he, he wanted to do the 1994 angle, I think for just kind of interesting cultural fodder, which I I didn't address in my segment, that's much more Jennifer's uh, and Ryan's and Chloe's Uh, everyone else's except Timo and me. Uh, actually, uh, which maybe reveals that we just had like VHS segments in our back pocket. And we're like, Oh yeah. 94. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. sure, yeah, they, Oh, great. They want not have cell phones. Um, you know, I, I, I honestly think for, for David, it, it may have been more of an aesthetic choice. You know, he, he saw that like what the VHS series always had been was these authentically very grungy and, and kind of unsafe feeling found footage films that, you know, felt more like the original experience of, of things that might really be discovered um, and gave you that kind of verisimilitude as a horror viewer of, of seeing something that, that might be real or, and, you know, and obviously they're very silly films and quite this one in particular is quite comedic uh, at times, but, you know, but that's the fun of it. And so, um, so I think David just really wanted us to go to a really older analog place and and keep it there um, was, you know, mainly the kind of a psych drive and then, you know, once everyone kind of had that guideline, you know, we're all filmmakers, we all kind of are going to be inspired by that in in different exciting ways. And Chloe, what
1: were the challenges and creative ways that you guys kind of constructed the look and feel to take on the correct aesthetic? It it feels remarkably accurate, but I, I'm assuming more goes into it than just tracking down a camcorder and crossing your fingers that you get tape noise and tracking (laughs) issues. And did you try that? And is there a reason that doesn't work? And and the process is way more involved than just doing that.
5: I think that was a discussion early on like can we actually like record this on VHS and the answer was no <laughs> which, which I mean you know I I get where shutter would be coming from but honestly I feel like you know we were pretty good about like as a group with our respective DPs with Jared Rab and Andy Appel, like doing a bunch of camera tests, like running it through a bunch of different tape decks and like seeing what really worked for our individual segments. And you know, just what felt right for the movie as a whole. You know, we shot it at like a 29.97 frame rate, which doesn't really matter anymore, but it seemed really cool and nerdy at the time. Um, so yeah, a, a lot, a lot went into it for sure. And just sort of like the the workflow and the process of those tape decks was certainly a journey uh, and challenging, but I think it really pays off. I think the movie looks really cool. And I feel like I was so excited about doing a 1994 VHS movie. Like, I really love the fact that you're kind of going back to the beginning um, and that aesthetic I think just works really well for this.
1: And Jennifer with Holy Hell being the wraparound is the unifying story that glues everything together with this SWAT team conducting a raid on what they think is a drug lab, but reveals something way more fucked up. How did you come up with that concept and execute it in a way that is seamlessly choreographed alongside the other stories in the universe without being jarring or not making sense in any context, you know?
2: Well, I suppose if you read some reviews, it is jarring and it doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> but we'll ignore I those. I disagree. Um, well, I actually kind of inherited the wraparound from David Bruckner. So David was going to direct the wraparound, and he had written a draft of the script. that I think had had originated with a with a draft that Simon had written, and um, which was about this the kind of general idea of um of a SWAT team, um yeah raiding what seemed like a super lab and then kind of uncovering some sort of cult activities. And I liked that. Um, I liked that both of them, ha- both of the scripts had that sort of like general kind of thread. And I really liked that. I mean, it was, a. have never, I've written lots of provocative phrases in many of my scripts. I've never written shots fired. So I was like, yeah, like let's lean into this. And, um, and I inherited a cast, which I also wanted to, um, y- y- you know, Uh, sort of stay true to some elements that were, um, you know, that that were already connected to the other shorts. Two of them had already been have been shot and then also sort of just stayed beholden to to sort of certain um, like budgetary issues that had already been put in place, like the like the cast. I mean, I didn't want to sort of recast it that, you know, the cast was was, you know, actors you know, not only have filmmakers been wanting to make films over this past 19 months, but actors have been wanting to act again, you know, so it felt like it wasn't a challenge to sort of like take on that that kind of initial just general thread and then to to use the cast that was that had already been attached. I mean, I think that the the challenge for me was, um, well, and I would also say that, and this is not like an unfair thing, but I had written something that maybe was like too sort of ambitious for the wraparound, you know, and it had sort of a, a much larger kind of beginning and an end. And I get that the sort of world of, of VHS, Brad Miska kept reminding me all the time. He was like... <laughs> It's like, stay within the world of VHS. And um, I think it's just the kind of, you know, rebel and misfit in me that was just like, but maybe not, maybe let's draw outside of the the world of VHS. And I think that the challenge for me in terms of sort of shooting and editing, as you all know, Boo Crew, is that, you know, my, um, you know, I just was not so, there was a learning curve in terms of that, that kind of shooting style, you know, sort of like setting up a scene. And kind of choreographing the um, the the cinematography to 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 sort of match kind of an editorial narrative, right? Like I've I've not shot a found footage project before, so I'm so I'm much more used to shooting a conventional way, which takes a lot, which can take a lot longer once you're actually shooting. But um, in this case, it took it was longer during the. Prep and the rehearsal, you know, just making sure that once we started shooting, that if we wanted a close up, that Andy, um, Simon and I shared the same DOP, Andy Appel. And that, you know, I wanted to be able to use the close, use close ups, which, which are sort of indicative of so many of the other narratives that I've done before, um, but make it feel organic because I knew we couldn't like cut into a close up, you know. So Andy and I talked about, we, we sort of carved out a real kind of provenance for our, for our cameraman, you know, um, so that it would, it would make sense for him to kind of move into, Oh, let's say a disembodied eyeball, like move into it and move kind of close to it and be able to kind of focus it um, rather than just sort of ca- catching it, you know, in the, in the frame. And then the same thing, working with Tom Newell, the editor, you know, it was also knowing that, that you, you can, you obviously you can, um, I was using a single camera, you know, which I think Chloe used as well. So you are, you know, you are a little constrained to make sure that it feels like it still is this continuous um, sort of camera movement. I mean, you certainly, we certainly made, you know, lots of cuts, but I'm used to making lots more cuts. And so at some point that was like backing away and saying like it, you know, too many cuts actually sort of makes it feel like it's not part of what is, you know, what we're watching is, is really, um, is really happening. So um, there's, that was a, it was a real curious learning curve, but, I liked, I like that. I mean, I always like, you know, to be able to evolve as a, you know, as a filmmaker. And I thought one thing going into it and learned a lot doing it and learned a lot in post and, you know,
1: what about the production design that goes into yours? There's a lot going on with the tower of TVs and the the church scene and everything with all the dolls and all that stuff. Was that a challenge to even just find all that material during this lockdown up in Canada?
2: Well, I mean, the wild thing is that, you know, we were looking for locations and the location scouting was all, was obviously done all remotely. And so there was a couple different options for big warehouses like that. And the one that we chose is part of a, um, a group of warehouses called Digital Canaries, and they, I think, are supposed to function as both a kind of a soundstage and prop warehouse. Uh, but sort of at the end of the day, the one that I shot in was just a, a big warehouse kind of filled with stuff. You know, there was sort of like no rhyme or reason to it, and it was filthy, at some point we knew there was something dead in the building and there was, we found it, you know, we found one day a dead raccoon. Then the next day we found a live raccoon running around the space. I mean, it was other, it was, there were also some interesting challenges, but because it is this kind of storage, like a storage space, there was this replica of the oval oval office, which is where we begin the wraparound. Um, So I knew I wanted to shoot there. There was a whole section of the warehouse that had just like, you know, dozens and dozens of these old church pews there were endless, endless um, sort of big containers full of mannequins all over the building. So that was just a matter of like finding those and gathering them all together. There was also like a whole room full of, um, of like, you know, tube televisions that we, that, you know, a lot of them didn't work, but I would say over half of them did work. So we were able to kind of just like gather those into the other room and kind of build this um, tower uh, I mean, the, the I could go on and on to so where the the sort of like w- w- the weirdest corners of that of that building, but it really existed. So there was a lot of found production design. But then I worked with this great um, uh, team led by Justin Rao, who's a Toronto based production designer, who the first time I talked to him, I was saying, like, I'm sort of leaning into something that feels like a kind of feminist video drone so i want some like walls of televisions so, and he was like yeah no problem i build i build those all the time and i was like okay and you know you never know if he's just saying that so he'll get the gig but you know like the first time that i went into the space after the whole art team had been in there they in fact had built that tower and they had built the wall and they had like you know all of this great um footage that they were putting onto the monitors that was um you know true of 1994 i mean all that stuff was actually being triggered by, you know, um, like uh, the, a computer. So we weren't using VHS VHS tapes that had to be synchronized. I mean, it, like we did use some modern technology, but I was really happy happy to find that space because, you know, again, I feel like the a lot of my narrative content in the previous projects comes out of the art direction, you know, and so I was happy to be able to to um, you know, to have some pretty substantial and maybe unexpected, you know, production design in my section, in my section.
4: Chloe, storm drain was impeccably done. The story finds a reporter exploring the sewers, investigating a local urban legend. Can you tell us about the location? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh,
5: so <laughs> I was really, I I wrote the script, and the storm drain was always a part of it, Um, and I felt like that was a really important part. You know, I was inspired a little bit by you know, movies like The Descent, where it's people entering into this very claustrophobic environment where the darkness just sort of swallows you up. So uh, you know, it was, I was really eager to actually make this happen, but I remember like a few weeks before uh, someone coming to me, I can't remember if it was like maybe Brad or Bruckner, like very sensibly, they were like, so maybe you should have a backup plan if we can't do this in a storm drain. <laughs> cause I didn't know, I was like, yeah, how are we going to do this? And it turns out the answer is, we're just going to find a storm drain and go into it. <laughs> it's just all very real. Um, we got kind of lucky actually, cause Jared, our DP, had previously shot a, uh, I think a web series in a storm drain in the Toronto, the greater Toronto area. So he was able to act as our sort of guide into the storm drain. The difference was Jared shot his thing in the summer when that Mm. storm drain was completely dry. Ours obviously took place in the winter. And the first day we scouted it, the water was like so high, it like came up like almost to our knees. We had to like wade in there with like boots. And I was like, all right, so, if this happens the day we shoot and this water level gets any higher, like we're not going to be able to do this. So the whole time I was just thinking like there's a world in which like we're going to show up and we can't we can't shoot this drain. We had a, we had a backup drain. It wasn't nearly as good. But um, luckily we got there. It was OK. I mean, it was disgusting. Like <laughs> it smelled bad. It was all very real. I didn't want to take the actors too far into it. And I was really worried about how they would react just generally because of course, like, but honestly, they were so game. I feel like they were less freaked out than I was by the whole endeavor. So we got really lucky. Uh, it was an adventure. I don't know if I would do it again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Did you have to journey very far into it? I mean, when you get into some of those more expansive places that look like actual rooms, is that are those actually inside the storm drain still that we're seeing?
5: Well, I feel like that that means that like I have to give a massive shout out to our production designer Peter Mahajic because no, uh, basically the, the when they enter the storm drain, that's a real drain when they kind of go up that little enclave and they see the sleeping bag, that's the drain. And then there's some footage of them kind of walking deeper in, which is also the drain. But by the point at which they get to that sort of section where they, there's that tent to the right. And, you know, they have that encounter with the homeless man. That is a set. That's where we transitioned into our set. Um, And the sort of storm drain cavern was also a set. So all of that was built in the atrium of, of the Holiday Inn Wow That's
0: incredible The Boo Crew Will be right back Created by Satan To prey on the living It feeds on your most Secret desires And hidden fears Dormant for centuries Its time has finally come Again Demonoid Messenger of Death Starring Samantha Edgar And Stuart Whitman How can they kill What's already dead Demonoid Rated R under 17, not admitted without parent.
4: I wanted to ask how you came up with the initial creature design and how did it work? I'm assuming it's all practical. It is all
5: practical. Yeah. So I had a very like hours and hours long conversation with this great concept artist named Keith Thompson, who David Bruckner has worked with. I believe he's working with him on Hellraiser. So I'm sure that's going to be out of this world. But Keith and I talked about, you know, all kinds of different ideas. We talked about like where the monster comes from, how he moves and I was always really adamant that I wanted it to feel like a creature that's kind of sick, like being in our world, it doesn't, it's not healthy. Like there's something sort of pitiful about it, even though it's also horrific. Like it has to pull itself along. It's sort of spewing this bile. And also of course, you know, we wanted something that felt like scary and weird and like other dimensional, but you could still see how someone would mistake it for a large rat. So, so I think that Keith did a great job sort of conceptualizing this thing that obviously I think has a lot of similarities to, you know, a Xenomorphs and Alien, but also like has this sort of rat-like essence about it. And then Patrick McGee was the wizard who created the sort of like Ratma suit. And he did it in a very short amount of time. And it was, I was so worried about it because I was like, this art is incredible. This could be so silly. Like anytime you have a man wearing a monster suit, it could turn out really poorly, but (laughs) it was amazing. Like he did, he did the most incredible job. We were waiting on it to arrive from Los Angeles, like the day before we shot it got there. Thank God. Did you get Um, to keep
1: it? Is it uh, on display in your living room now?
5: Okay. I I feel like I've, no, I want it. I feel like I've heard that it's in Pasha's garage. Pasha. That so was like our sort of wine producer, like production services. So I might need to get that back at some point.
0: We'll go to, we'll
1: go to Simon for empty wake. It's a really genius premise of use of a camera, right. setting it up to record a wake. So talk a bit about just coming up with the general concept. Was this something that was inspired by the project or was it previously a previously existing idea that you would had?
3: that's a good question because you know I, I i think they they did kind of dovetail i would say as a filmmaker i i probably tend to take uh inspiration from limitations probably that comes from starting you know making movies with literally no money and you'd have like one resource and you'd be like okay i'm so i'm gonna make a movie around like this resource like a friend has a truck so let's make a short film about a truck and then you know that film would be horrible but you know you're you're getting there So, so I was like, okay, we're in a holiday in bubble and everyone wants me to shoot in the bubble. So, you know, I'll, I'll come up with something that takes place in a a room. Um, And, but I had been wanting to do like a, but that's like sort of like a cheap answer. Cause I, the truth is like, um, and Jennifer and I have talked a bit about this uh, and, and I know she's mentioned this interview is like, I think, especially with the first VHS movie and with my experience on these films, I have developed a sense for like what viewers get exhausted by and, and, and what they'll kind of tolerate in terms of like camera work. And I specifically did want to just kind of figure out if I could do a tripod VHS segment, basically. I mean, obviously it gets handheld for, for a, a significant portion of it, but I really kind of wanted to, to try to do something that felt very static. And uh, among other things would give kind of people's eyes uh, a bit of time to rest, but like that would kind of lull you into a different sense of suspense. So, so that was where the kind of um, three camera setup notion you know they're all facing like the podium for people's eulogies so you know so there's a bit of a bit of verisimilitude to it and you know and then the, the challenge was just like would that be suspenseful or dull you know and and you know and that's the that's and then you cut it down uh ideally towards suspenseful
0: in your segment how was the effect achieved for that half head uh, was that hmm. practical or visual effects
3: it's a combination of uh, practical and visual. So there's no um, Justin Martinez uh, of radio silence uh, fame uh, did the visual effects for my, my segment. I think uh, most of them and, um, you know, and and he's really gifted. He's he's more than just like a usual kind of like VFX guy. He really, you know, is a filmmaker, too. So he has like cool creative approaches. Um, but that said, it was really mostly a composite material. It, 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 it was all built by Chris Bridges was my special effects person up in, uh, up in Canada. And he, he, so he built like this half head that my actor at Devin Chinchiong, who's a contortionist, uh, formerly a cruise line dancer would wear. So he's kind of like always leaning back and he has a fake head. You know, we did a full body cast of Devin to basically build a fake body of him. So it, there's a, so he's wearing basically a fake half head. Um, that we then painted out the fake half of, and Chris filmed a slice of brain that Andy and I put on a, you know, basically on a, you know, just on a C stand and filmed from every angle, uh, including with like lightning flashes and the camera, you know, <laughs> light hitting it. So we filmed this thing from every conceivable angle. And then we comped that in essentially paint, Justin painted out the, the fake mechanics and put in the brain slice. And then it's just from that matter, it's just tracking. So I think in general, especially with a VHS film, if you try to do something fully digital, because, you know, I knew that I wanted this guy to look horrific enough that it had to feel it had to feel not like something that an actor could be wearing. It had to feel extreme enough that when you looked at it, you had to be like, how is that guy moving around? Because that's the whole kind of joke of the segment. And I knew that if I went fully digital, which would be the easiest way to do that, it, I stood a really good chance of it looking fake or wrong in a way that would like undermine the entire film, like not just my segment, but like the entire movie starts to feel cheap if you get into like cheap digital effects in a found footage movie. You just can't; they just do not hold up. So yeah, so you know, I think in general you always try to achieve it practically, and then you do some kind of finesse uh, in post. And you know, as long as you kind of have a plan, that's that's fairly easy and i I basically this is like the one that was like the one thing my segment was doing so it was like so i planned pretty thoroughly
1: there is that magic of found footage and things just looking extra terrifying when seen through that pov lens and i was wondering just to get your comment on that because you could see uh i don't know a love scene in a short amount of time to be truly effective in a short amount of time might seem uh, gratuitous or a 10 second bit from a comedy act may have replay quality but One frame of Megan is missing or Blair Witch Project has the power to live in your brain forever and ruin your life in the middle of the night. Why do you think horror is such a powerful and evocative tool when the content is even reduced to its absolute shortest, even from an image?
3: Well, uh, assuming that question was for me, uh, you know, I I do think that, that there's something really interesting about how analog video uh, not only like looks technologically in that it looks uniquely horrible, uh, and tends to wash out, you know, the the beautiful details of of like people's faces, and and leave you with kind of like the the starker impression of their faces. Uh, so just inherently, I think like early video looks ugly in a way that 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 enhances horror actually, and and doesn't work very well for love scenes. Um, and all you have to do is look at like porn from like you know <laughs> like, like nineteen anyway, whatever. But, you know, but 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 sincerely look, look at some old porn and, and, and be and be, be kind of uh, horrified, uh, at, you know, at, at how just like awful the contrast is and, and just how terrible people look. I think that's part of it. But I do also think like there's a sloppiness. And, and if you can make that frame feel real and, and Blair Witch Project is, you know, obviously like the, the godfather of verisimilitude in found footage filmmaking that they just sent like three actors out in the woods and were like, here, go, go, go starve. like come back. Like, let us know. I mean, they just like tortured three people in the woods and they're like, all right, we got it. Like, so it feels incredibly real. Also, those actors were brilliant at improvisation, um, which wasn't really appreciated fully at the time. But, um, you know, I I think that is truly it. It's it's that like Slenderman, you know, image of of seeing something that your eye is like, oh, that's creepy. And also the context of that image makes me feel like it's in my reality. Uh, The photographer Charlie White. Um, did a series called in a matter of days, which are very like mundane photos of like East Los Angeles, but with people holding up like like alien heads and, and stuff like that. And it, it's 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 extraordinary. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of part of it. I think if you can create like like a photo that feels real and mundane in a way that's recognizable to us based on you know, our cultural nostalgia or whatever, and then add something fantastical to that. Cloverfield did that really well. I actually thought, you know, that 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 gets that found footage sweet spot of like, oh, I'm recontextualizing this fantasy thing. Take Ryan's segment. It's like, you know, if, if, if you were to pitch the horror of it, you know, it's a very kind of old fashioned thing in some ways, but the approach to it is completely new and completely fresh. And so, you're, you know, anyone who would get anyone who might balk at the I, I don't want to spoil it, <laughs> like anyone who might balk at the old fashioned nature of the horror, not even thinking about that because it's being approached from such a crazy, real contextual place. And I think that's what found footage does its best is it allows you to reinvent kind of familiar ideas in a new context uh, that maybe and especially in a VHS film maybe wouldn't even work as a feature. It, it gives you a lot to play with there. On that note, Ryan, with your segment, terror the vigilante
1: first Patriots militia, these guys kind of yeah, or something like that, yeah, <laughs> kind of bumbling their way through <laughs> through this end game that gets uh, slowly revealed that Simon was referring to. So conceptually, how did you come up with your concept? Did you base it on on anything that was going on in the 90s? It kind of had that cult feel to it, I guess, and things like waco and and things like that kind of came to mind. Where, where were you coming from?
6: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I thought it was interesting. It was like it really came out of a very recent uh, incident where um, uh, the the Michigan governor what was her name? Uh, Gretchen Whitmer. She, she got, uh, or the plot to kidnap her. And that was just scary to me that it kind of came and went and wasn't really super discussed or delved into all that much. And then, you know, thinking back to specifically 94 and like you mentioned, all of the different sort of militia stuff and domestic terrorists, uh, stuff, n- not feeling that distant or, uh, or alien to today, like that felt like, you know, a go picture, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And what about the challenges on yours? You, you had a lot of pyrotechnics, you're dealing with a lot of guns, a lot of gunfire, things blowing up.
6: Yeah, Too many, too much.
1: <laughs> yeah. What What were the challenges of kind of working around those things and incorporating that into the story?
6: It was an awesome experience to be able to, I mean, my understanding, like we came into kind of like, you know, living in high cotton here where like we had resources and uh, an actual budget whereas you know previous uh, vhs segments were struggling on that front so like it, it it felt cool to be able to like really push it and take advantage of that it was also uh, extremely cold on top of being in a uh, during a pandemic. So, you know, we were making a movie during a pandemic out in like sub zero temperatures, which is, I'm from Atlanta and I live in uh, Los Angeles. So, not, <laughs> not my forte. Yeah, um, oh my God. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Simon actually gave a good piece of advice early on because he, you know, I had shot Seance up in Winnipeg. So he's just like, don't go near the uh, the heating tent. Therein lies Liza trap, which was, which was true. And also, uh you know a grueling punishment you had to just sort of endure <laughs> <laughs> i loved the setting and i loved you know being able to take advantage of it being snowy and kind of that that sort of i mean you know the thing setting which i, I, I love that film and that was definitely a reference for this so you know kind of bringing like v, like expanding the vhs world into like kind of a snowy terrorscape was really fun
1: What about that snowy terror escape as far as that access that you had, it looked like a huge farm compound. Was that, did you have the run of the place? How did that work?
6: Yeah, it was really cool. Like uh, I was sent early on, like, you know, scout photos for another place that was like just a straight up like hippie commune. (laughs) Like they had buses and that they were all living out of. And I was like, I don't know that these, you know, militia Nazis would be going leaning that way, but the, farm itself was like going to be like our base camp and they just sort of snapped pics of like where we would park trucks and stuff. (laughs) What, what is that place? (laughs) Uh, But it was a, it was another, you know, it was a real location. We were shooting in that, that barn was probably colder than being outside because we were there there during the nights to be able to like, you know, block out light or whatever. And uh the barn was scary. We were up in like a big hayloft, so we had to like, you know, construct that was like our money kind of went towards like not building a a set of like making that safe so that we could all stand up in that hay loft and, and uh not collapse and be hurt. <laughs>
1: and what about that there's a I i mean not to spoil anything by giving away too many details but there is a detonation that, uh, that occurs Who cares? <laughs> there's, a, there's an explosion <laughs> that occurs and it looks like a seamless edit and you see the guys like face covered in soot and everything like yeah. that how was that scene achieved
6: yeah we did we did do uh like full explosion pyrotechnics um we did you know blanks for the big chain gun and all the that that chain I've never been near a gun that big I mean it felt like a you felt the concussive blast of it coming off it was insane and it was rattling off the barn itself so it just made this like super gnarly cacophony but um yeah we did all, we did all practical explosions and then augmented with you know some VFX for like fireballs and and that kind of stuff. Oh, it looks fantastic. Did
4: you get to keep any of the props from your segment or costume? Ours is all
6: detonated. It's all gone.
4: <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's true.
1: And then your yours has this kind of the sludgy, terrifying metal music at at one point that the guys listened to. And it's one of the few times that music is, is introduced. It happens kind of in stabs throughout this, throughout VHS 94. A, a lot of it in, in Holy Hell, too. Is there some one person who was kind of in charge of all that? Or where did you find that?
6: Yeah, that was uh, Greg Anderson, uh, who's then the band son and owns uh, or runs, I think he owns it. Uh, Southern Lord Records and is sort of just a, you know, a legend in the field, I think uh josh goldblum brought him on uh pretty early on in the process and we all kind of had you know our initial meetings with them and and it was like uh how do we like how do we best take advantage of music in a found footage film it kind of like added an extra challenge or layer to it or you know where where did it help support i guess so like it was it was a cool process i know Like everybody could probably talk to it. Like we all kind of went back and forth with them, but, um, Greg was super helpful. And for, for my segment, I had, uh, like for like the party scene, I had just had a temp score probably, I guess, uh, subconsciously, I I knew this was a deal, but I, I use like kind of area, uh, appropriate or era appropriate music of, um, an old like death metal band and the, um, singer and uh our uh, musician that works with greg and son was a previous singer in that band so it was cool to be able to kind of bring him back and yeah make some new gnarly death metal music that's awesome yeah the whole
1: vhs aesthetic on these films has that like punk rock evil as shit death metal tone <laughs> to it which is great No, i love the way it works
6: yeah i think greg's putting an album out too from from VHS oh, that's, right? amazing. Yeah. that's
1: amazing that's amazing yeah, Did nice they, I, the think, I, think, soundtrack out. I think Sun did the uh, music for Devil's Candy as well they did a lot of that oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Dark, yeah did. dark satanic music yeah. for that which is insane so guys as we wrap up here where does the franchise go from here is there plans to follow this up that you guys are aware of would it be something that you would jump at the opportunity to do again <laughs> <laughs> Simon, Simon's out. <laughs> how about some of the
6: newcomers right like chloe and ryan yeah. and jennifer what do you guys think for sure yeah uh we haven't heard any plans or they're they're kind of brewing i mean the the uh the joke is hopefully uh this does really well and it'll like be a foregone conclusion that another vhs will be coming promptly and at least for myself i'd love to figure out something. I don't know. Maybe I'll take a, me and Jennifer can trade. I'll take a stab at the wraparound and just (laughs) live in the, live in the punishment. That is the, the thankless job of the wraparound. (laughs) Yeah. I think
2: I would, I think I would try it again. I've sort of like, you know, learned a lot from this process. And one of, one of them is, um, you know, when, when you're approached by even, you know, the most outstanding, you know, David Bruckner to say, and he's like, I'm going to, you know, I was going to do the wraparound, but now I want you to do the wraparound. And the wraparound is notoriously the most hated section of of all of these VHSs. And I was like, oh, I can do it. I love a challenge, you know, and I still would say that, you know, but um, yeah, it was not, no one was being sort of overzealous by, by, um, you know, by suggesting that. So I would do it again, but I would happily uh, decline the wraparound.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you, Chloe? (laughs)
2: I
5: would. Yeah, I would definitely do it again. I feel like the only thing is, you know, they were really nice about working around my schedule, like making sure I could do VHS in December right before I went to do my feature. Even the VHS segment, you know, it's a short, but it still requires a ton of time and attention and energy and care. So if I could do it again, where I'm not simultaneously doing a feature, that would be ideal.
4: I had read that you were going to be working on a remake of Audrey Rose. Is that true? Well, it is true that
5: I wrote a remake of Audrey Rose, which I loved um, and I'm really proud of. And there was a time when I thought that movie was getting made. And as happens in Hollywood, there were some executive shuffles and I think it fell through the cracks a little bit. But I still love it. I would still love to do it. Uh, We have to figure out how to get that one going. Yeah, that's
4: one of my most favorite movies of all time. That apartment that they film in is insane. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I felt
5: like it was such an interesting movie to remake, um, especially because I, I felt like there was like room to sort of embrace the genre aspects of it more. I mean, it's interesting in the original that it kind of becomes like a courtroom drama in the third act. But I think we were trying to do something that felt uh, distinct from that original movie. And yeah, I hope it gets made. I think it would be
1: cool. Oh, Me that'd too. be awesome. Well, fingers crossed from that. We'll spread yeah. the word. And then Leah, we'll end on uh, end on a question for you from, uh, to Jennifer.
3: Hey, Jennifer, there's so much, uh, cool horror candy in your segment as the officers, the of SWAT team, you know, the discoveries room to room. Has that spawned any ideas for any feature length or spinoffs going forward?
2: You know, I mean, I think in general, what it, what it spawned was the, the idea that I need to, um, to, I want to do a, like a lady led cult story and, um, you know, and I wanted, and I want to set something in, I was going to say in yesteryear. No, I want to set something. I mean, I really liked working with the, the material of, um, of analog video. I mean, that's kind of where I began not to to age myself, but that is absolutely where I began as a filmmaker and like a video artist. I don't think they use that term anymore, but yeah, so and those things I had been thinking about already which I think is why when, you know, Josh contacted me to consider being involved in VHS94, it wasn't like that was coming out of nowhere. You know, I'd already sort of been thinking about some, you know, a kind of a lady-led cult cult story and setting it at a time where it would be appropriate to um to sort of gunk up the and I say that with love, like gunk up the image with lots of lots of kind of glitches and um, that kind of grimy um, and analog. So, um, yeah, but I've got two other pro- I've got a project in post that I need to finish. And then I'm shooting another kind of a follow up to to um, Knives and Skin in March. So anything that's that's related to this one has to wait till after that. But, yeah, oh, that's so it's exciting. That's
0: very
1: that's stoked. Awesome. And I love that painting over your shoulder, by the way.
2: Thank you very much. It's called tear. It's an adolescent girl crying. It's a vintage uh, paint by numbers. And so I think anyone who's seen knives and skin or anything else I've done is like, yes, I obviously have to have a painting that's described as adolescent girl crying.
1: I love it. Ryan, do you got anything on the pike coming down that you're working on right now?
6: Uh, Yeah, a couple things going. Um, I think I'm close to announcements on, so they're not like official, official out, but um, now I'm, uh, now I'm, the wheels are turning on uh VHS 84. Uh, nothing but wraparounds. We all do wraparounds. All filmed in pixel vision,
3: Fisher price.
1: <laughs> and how
6: about
3: you, Simon, what's on deck? Uh, you know, my directing career has flatlined again as it inevitably does after I work on a VHS film. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm writing for a while, you know, Adam and I have a few projects that have been announced, um, face off two and, and thundercats most notably. Uh, and then, uh, Adam's got another project in the works. Um, so, so, yeah, so I've, I've just been kind of busy writing, honestly. Uh, doing I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the studio screenwriter world right now, but in a wonderful place where I don't actually have to ever go to any of the meetings because my friend just handles them for me. Uh, so really, really, really got a sweet deal at the moment. Uh, so, so I, I certainly uh, can't complain, but I'd love to be, uh, I would love to be back on a set complaining again soon. We can't wait to see yeah. what you
1: guys all have coming out. It's always yes. amazing. And VHS 94 blew us away, Frank, quite frankly. it's uh, yes. You guys did a great job on this. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank appreciate you. that. All right, everybody. Thank you again so much for joining us. We appreciate yes. this so much. Thanks for having me. You.
4: you, guys. Bye, See guys. You.
1: Thank you, Boo Crew. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 262. Special thanks to our guests, Chloe Okuno, Simon Barrett, Jennifer Reeder, and Ryan Prowse. At time of release, Bloody Disgusting's VHS 94 is available now on Shutter. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying sweet screams.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew and Tales from the Boo Crew.com. Tales From The Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand And Leone D'Antonio The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand The Boo Crew is a TSP creation Part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network Bye